Now, it's time for the Cybersecurity News Bite with Jim Guckin. Welcome to the Cybersecurity News Bite podcast for March 20th, 2022. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about hackers targeting bank networks with a new rootkit to steal money from ATM machines. The new BitZor 20 Linux botnet uses DNS tunneling and exploits Log4J flaw. German government warns against using Russia's Kapersky antivirus software. And new Linux bug in NetFilter firewall module lets attackers gain root access. So a threat actor has been observed this week using a previously unknown rootkit, along with some other tools which are specifically targeting Oracle Solaris systems. Now, the goal of this, which I think is genius, is trying to compromise ATM switching networks so they can carry out uh, unauthorized uh, cash withdrawals and different banks using fraudulent cards. Now, some of these attacks actually have sp- have spanned several years. Uh, they're using the rootkit CareTap which is designed to conceal network connections, processes, and files, as well as Steelhound, which is a variant of Steel Corgi, which is an in-memory dropper that's used to decrypt an embedded payload and encrypt new binaries. They're using Winghook, a keylogger for Linux and Unix that captures the data in an encoded format. Wingcrack, a utility that's used to parse the encoded content generated by Winghook, Wing, uh, WiperWrite, a utility that erases log entries pertaining to a specific user on Linux and Unix systems, and MIG Log Cleaner, which wipes logs or removes certain strings from logs in Linux and Unix-based systems. So they're using a lot of tools to kind of make this attack work. Now, this was originally found uh, by Mandiant, who is tracking the group as UNC2891. Now, they kind of think that uh, the group's tactics, techniques, um, and some of the procedures they're using overlap with another group called UNC1945. uh, Mandiant said, while some of the overlaps between group UNC2891 and UNC1945 are notable, it is not conclusive enough to attribute the intrusion to a single threat group. Now, they're also using applications like Slapstick and Tiny Shell, which are used to gain the persistent remote access to mission-critical systems, as well as shell execution and file transfers uh, via R-Login, Telnet, or SSH. Now, Mandate said, in line with the group's familiarity with Unix and Linux-based systems, 2891 often named and configured their tiny shell backdoors with values that masquerade as legitimate services that might be overlooked by investigators, such as System D, the name System Cache Demon NCSD, and the Unix or and the Linux at, at Demon ATD. So they're going real out of their way to not only just install this stuff maliciously on a computer or on a switch to, to uh, get data from ATMs, they're, they're trying to make it that even if you're looking for it, it looks like a normal system file, which is something really, you know, malicious actors have been doing for a while now. Now, the intrusion staged by the 
actor involve a high degree of OPSEC and leverage both public and private malware, utilities, and scripts to remove evidence and hinder response efforts, Mandiant's uh, saying. And the crazy thing here is uh, Mandiant was actually able to recover memory data using forensics tools from a compromised ATM switch, and they found uh, one variant of the kernel rootkit enabled to intercept card and pin verification messages. Now, the goal of this was to use that stolen data to perform fraudulent cash withdrawals from ATM machines. Because they have the card number and they have the pin, so all they got to do is pass it on to a new card. So it's really an interesting kind of attack that you see here. Where, you know, you, you, you kind of see every once in a while people trying to steal AD, ATMs and stuff like that. This is, this is exactly what they're doing, but they're doing it on the digital end. So you don't need a card reader if you're going to, you know, a skim, a card skimmer. You don't need that stuff in this kind of attack because they're actually infecting the infrastructure for it. Which I think is kind of genius because, look, people like me often go to every ATM I've ever used or every card, um, credit card reader that I use whenever I go shopping and I try to, you know, really quickly pull on the thing to see if it comes off. This is almost undetectable from your average user. You would have to be in the system. And even then, because of the way they're doing this, it's hard to detect. So be cautious going out here because this is genius, but it's going to it's going to be everywhere eventually because um, this group is really laying good groundwork, covering their tracks. Um, but once again, not flawless. They were able to be detected by Mandiant, who was able to get a machine and look at some of the code. So let's see where this goes. But be cautious when you're using an ATM, especially, I guess, a non-name brand one. A new previously undocumented backdoor has just been found. It's been observed targeting Linux systems with the goal of making those machines, well, into a botnet. Um, now, like most botnet machines, it can also act as a conduit for downloading and installing other rootkits. The name for this new uh, backdoor is called BitXOR20. It's a combination of things. It's based on the file name it's using, which is B1T bit in, in leet speak, and the XOR encryption algorithm and the RC4 algorithm key length of 20 bytes. That's where you get the bit XOR20 in the name. It was first observed propagating through our favorite log4j vulnerability back in the beginning of February on February 9th, 2022. It leverages a technique called DNS tunneling to build communication channels with command and control servers, C2 servers, by encoding the data in DNS queries and responses. Very genius here. It currently supports the ability to obtain a shell, execute arbitrary commands, install a rootkit, open a SOX5 proxy, and function to upload sensitive information back to the command server. Once a machine is successfully compromised, the malware utilizes the DNS tunnel to retrieve and execute commands sent by the server. Now, part of this reason is because firewalls tend to block a lot of the traffic, but if you're using DNS, no one blocks DNS. No one filters DNS so that you know it has a good way of getting out even on a, a secure kind of network. Now, 
the bot sends stolen information, command execution, and all uh, to be delivered after hiding it using specific encoding techniques to C2 as a DNA, DNS request. After receiving the request, the command server sends the payload to the bot side as a response to the DNS request. Bot and C2 server achieve communication with the help of the DNS protocol. It's very genius. So every, the communication back and forth, it's not like it just sends it via DNS, it gets it via DNS. Now, so far, a total of 15 commands are implemented in the uh, backdoor, chief among them being uploading system information, executing arbitrary system commands, reading and writing files, starting and stopping proxies, and creating reverse shells. Now, the only good thing about this is it's still a newer kind of backdoor system, and I'll just say sometimes it can be just a little bit buggy. So it's one of those things to kind of look out for, and it's, I said, it's fairly new. It's only, you know, a little over a month old at this point. Well, we've seen it in the wild for a little over a month. Um, but I'm kind of watching this one with a little bit of intrigue because, you know, Log4j was this big thing and everyone was patching for it and it's going to be haunting the cyber world for years. And people are going to keep writing code for stuff like this. Uh, so it's really important that you're making sure that your environment is patched wherever Log4j may be in it and make sure things are as safe as possible. Now, this story is one I really debated on actually covering um, because it's, it's, it's a weird one because it's cybersecurity, but it's also Ukraine-Russia war related. So on Tuesday, the Russian cybersecurity firm Kapersky responded to an advisory that Germany's Federal Office of Information Security, called BSI, stated. So BSI is against using the company's security solution in the country over, quote, doubts about the reliability of the manufacturer. And that the, they said the decision was made on political grounds. Now, this is Kaspersky, not BSI. <clears throat> the company said that it will continue to assure our partners and customers of the quality and integrity of our products, and we will be working with BSI for clarification on its decision and for the means to address it and other regulators' concerns, end quote. <clears throat> now, BSI recommended replacing applications from Kapersky's portfolio of antivirus software with alternative products, due to the risk that they could be exploited by Russia for an, a cyber attack. Now, companies and, and authorities with special security interests and operators of critical infrastructure are partic particularly at risk, said BSI, adding the company's tools could be used for attacks against its own customers or be compelled to strike systems against its will amidst the uh, Russia and Ukraine situation. Now, BSI's warning was just that. It was a warning. It's not an outright ban. And this goes with similar restrictions put in place by the U.S., U.K., and Dutch governments in 2017 and 2018 to phase out the use of antivirus software made by Kapersky Labs. Now, it is true that Kapersky is a Moscow-based company, 
it had shifted its cyber threat related data processing infrastructure uh, to uh, Switzerland, the Swiss city of Zurich back in 2018, and its data services and engineering practices have been subject to independent third party assessment. So there's really no smoking gun here saying that, you know, anything bad has happened. Now, Eugene Kapersky, who is the CEO of the company, you know, the company's named after him, obviously, struck a neutral tone in an attempt to distance the organization from being branded as siding with Russia. On uh, Twitter, he said, We believe that peaceful dialogue is the only possible instrument for resolving conflict. War isn't good for anyone. This was back on March 1st. So, it's interesting that we have... And, and look, do I think that even... Um, U.S.-based antivirus companies don't have the U.S. government kind of whispering in their ear like, hey, can you add this back door or this in there? I absolutely believe that. After the Snowden links of, you know, Prism and, 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 and stuff like that, it, wouldn't, it would be ridiculous for our government not to try to get backdoors into software that is made in the U.S. that may be used elsewhere. So can I say Kapersky probably wouldn't feel the same pressure from the government in which the company's located? I mean, honestly, it wouldn't even surprise me if, if the U.S. government had made the same request to them. So, it's weird. It's in a, a very um, weird location because they said it's not an outright ban. They're not saying use it or use it or don't use it. They're just saying, look, if you are a critical infrastructure or if you are, you know, a, I guess, a defense contractor over there, just be very careful if you're going to use this software and really consider you know, using a different product. And I'm wondering is if in the era of cyber war, which I'm sure we'll be seeing from this point forward, as well as traditional war, can you really start trusting products that are made outside your country? Can you trust the products really honestly that are made inside your country? These are things that, you know, you didn't have to think about in IT in years past. And now this is something to be starting to think about as you increase your security posture you know can you trust the companies to hold up against pressure from their or your government because you know we trust these products these are these are the core of our security for our environments and not knowing what's going on with them we just it, there's an inherent trust you trust that they are doing the right thing for you um, and why there's no evidence that Kapersky has done anything wrong. No evidence whatsoever. It there, there has to be a tinge in your head going, well, maybe. For our final story, a newly disclosed security flaw in the Linux kernel. Well, it could be leveraged by a local adversary to gain elevated privileges on vulnerable systems to execute code, uh, escape the container, or induce kernel panic. Now, if you're not familiar with the term kernel panic and it's not a funny comedy kernel in some military thing like Hogan's Heroes uh, kernel panic is a safety measure in which the operating system's kernel upon detecting some kind of internal fatal error either has to decide whether it's unable to safely recover or continue to run the system would have a major data loss and then it freaks out so 
if you're uh, like me more in the Windows world. This is kind of like the blue screen of Doom on Windows. So, this is called, or this um, bug is in the net filter, which is a framework that enables various networking-related operations, including packet filtering, network address translation, and port translation. So, this flaw is tracked as CVE 2022-25636, and has a CVSS score of 7.8 out of 10. So, pretty bad. Uh, it impacts the Linux kernel versions of 5.4 through 5.6.10. So, if you have those, this applies to you. Now, results... Uh, the results... Are, or not the results. This comes from a uh, out-of-bounds right error in the net filter subcomponent of the kernel. Now, this could be weaponized by a local attacker, meaning they have to be kind of on your network to create a denial or service attack or, you know, just uh, execute some arbitrary code. Now, Red Hat said in the advisory published on the 22nd of February that this flaw allows a local attacker with a user account on the system to gain access to out-of-bounds memory, leading to a system crash or a privilege escalation threat. Now, similar, I mean, I just talked about Red Hat, but similar um, bugs are in Debian, Oracle Linux, SUSE, and Ubuntu. Now, when I was doing research on this, I, I looked at Red Hat. There are workarounds, um, but you have to visit the OS-specific company site for the information of how to implement these workarounds. They they are, I'll say, when I looked at the Red Hat one, it, it's not horribly complicated. It gives you the steps on how to do it, but make sure you kind of know what you're doing. I, I mean, I, I, I worked with Linux. I have Linux systems. Uh, I, I'm, I'm okay in Linux. Uh, I'm not the best, so um, I would be, would be very cautious if I did it. Um, but make sure you, you take um, take care to get this uh, remediated only because, like I said, it is a local attacker, but doesn't mean necessarily that someone can't be in your system and then utilize this. Anytime a security vulnerability is found, uh, and this is a 7.8 out of 10, so for a vulnerability, this is pretty severe, uh, you want to make sure you patch it as quick as possible just to make sure that you are prepared and you don't have this vulnerability that could cause uh, the machine to become compromised and utilized um, by an attacker to attack other things, to move laterally on your network, or just be able to cause whatever is on that Linux server to become unavailable or, as I said, use a denial of service attack. So please make sure you patch it as soon as possible. And, um, you know, you should be doing that anyway with all your software. And before we sign off, one last thing. Starting next week, instead of releasing on Sundays, we'll start releasing the show on Mondays, uh, just because it's packing a lot of time into my my Sunday day. I'd rather spend a little more time with my family, so I apologize if that causes any inconvenience, but the show will start releasing on Mondays. All right, everyone, have a good week. Stay safe on the internet. We'll talk again next week. 
You've been listening to the Cybersecurity News Byte with Jim Guckin. Learn more about our show at cybersecuritynewsbyte.com. 